please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for those of you that may not have been here, we are continuing on our sermon series through Paul's letter to the Colossians, and uh, we're still in chapter 1. But one of the things that I wanted to point out as we continue on uh, through this series is you will notice in the outline that's found on your insert that there are a number of scriptures that I refer to, or at least in part I talk about whatever it is the topic is. But those are there so that if you have any questions, if you want to do a little more yourself, take it home and think about the sermon and look up the scriptures. I realize that might require a little work from you, but it might not be a bad thing for you to do because I'm going to just talk about those passages. I might refer to some of them, but some of them are there just for you to know that there's so much more in the scriptures that refer to what it is we're talking about in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Now, in week one, I talked about how one of the reasons Paul was writing this letter to the Colossians was because there was a heresy that was brewing in Colossae. There was a problem. There were questions about the faith. When the gospel was first preached there, they received it, but then sometimes people get their own ideas. Imagine that. And they start running with their own ideas in terms of what this faith is, or they start bringing in a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And so they kind of water down the faith to make it suit their needs or their desires. So that's what Paul is writing into. And as I also mentioned in the first week, Paul is leaning into Colossae. That he heard about what was going on there, though he didn't plant the church and hadn't been there. And so he was leaning in to kind of just talk with them about what it is was going on there in terms of belief and how they might address it and how they might understand it when they're confronted with this heresy. And what the focus is in particular as we're going through toward the end of chapter 1 is who is this Jesus? When we talk about Jesus Christ, who is he? And what does that mean for our lives? See, because even today, just like back then, by the way, if you were to ask a group of people today, just out in the culture, you go out into the culture, you get a group of people together, you say, do you believe in God? Most people will say, I believe in God, or I believe in a supreme being, or I believe in something or someone out there. And you'll get all these different renderings because, for one reason, it's safe to say you believe in God. Because believing in God can be pretty nebulous. And many times when people say they believe in God, they're actually creating a God in their own mind or their own heart that suits their needs and affirms everything about them. But when you get to the person of Jesus, when you talk about who is Jesus, even then you're going to get a mixed review. Even in the church, you'll get a mixed review, just like you would have gotten at the church in Colossae. You would have gotten a mixed review about 
who this Jesus is and what this Jesus means for our lives. You know, consider when Jesus himself walked the face of the earth. He asked the question of his apostles. Who do people say that I am? And they heard the mixed review because people talked about it. You know, basically what many people say today. Oh, he's a good person. He's a moral teacher. He's an ethical person. He kind of had the presence of God. But it's rare. Even sometimes in the church, it's rare when people understand this is God. He's not kind of like God. He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just a good guy. He's God. And that's what Paul is driving at in the letter to Colossians. If you go back to what Jesus said, there's no mistake about what he was saying, which is what ended up getting him killed. John chapter 4, he's talking to the woman at the well. Well, we're waiting for the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he's going to show us the whole thing. And Jesus says, I'm he. I'm him. I'm he. I'm the Messiah. Then you get to John chapter 8, and over and over again as he's dialoguing with the religious leaders. He says, I'm the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Over and over again, Jesus is saying things that is pointing to his being the Messiah and his being God. But once again, during his day, if you would ask the general population, well, we're not sure. If you would ask the religious leaders, he's misleading the people. Or he's evil even, because he's misleading the people. If you would ask the Romans, he's really a person that doesn't amount to much. He's this poor guy, he's just causing problems. And eventually he might have to be killed because he's causing problems. No big deal to them. If you ask his disciples, you're still going to get a mixed review. Listen to what John writes in John chapter 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000. When many of his disciples heard it, it being his teaching, saying, you must take me into yourself, eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is what we celebrate in communion. That you have to take me in and make me the Lord of your life if you're really going to understand who I am and what I'm about. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is too difficult. Who can accept it? goes on to say, but among you there are some who do not believe. And that's true of the church. As then, so now. People who really don't understand. Or don't want to accept who Jesus is and what he's asking of our lives in response to what he's done for us. Verse 66, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Much like we heard in the gospel reading today. Who do people say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. Peter gets it. Doesn't mean he always lived into it. But he got it. 
And that's what we need to understand as Paul is writing into this situation in Colossae. That he's dealing with this mixed bag. This mixed review about who this Jesus really is and what that means for our lives. Paul writes in Corinthians, and this is what he has in mind when he writes the Colossians, by the way. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. In other words, if Jesus is not who he said he is, if he didn't die on a cross and rise again from the dead, then what are you doing? What are we doing? Why are we here? That's the question. But if he did, if he did die on a cross, and if he did rise again, then this faith is real. Isn't it interesting that no one presented a dead body? No one even sought for a dead body. Because he rose. And then people had to deal with the truth. Do you accept it or not? Paul goes on to write in the, to the Corinthians. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified of God that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise if it is true that dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Understand how strong that is. This is the conviction and the truth that Paul is bringing to the Colossians. And he's trying to say, please understand, the heresies that are floating around these half-truths that will mislead you are ultimately going to hurt how you live. Understanding the Lordship of Jesus in your life. Unless you understand the truth. And it's real for you. So that's kind of the understanding as we approach this passage for today. And if you look in your bulletin to the first phrase... He is the image of the invisible God. <clears throat> image is the foundation for the word imagination. In other words, what Paul is saying here is if you can imagine God and all of his attributes, his holiness, his goodness, his love, his forgiveness, everything about who he is, and you are to wrap God up in the flesh. This is what you have. In your imagination, this is the real thing. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is the image of God. You want to see what God's like? Here He is. That's why He became incarnate. <clears throat> That's why we celebrate Christmas. That it is God's gift to us. You're going to be hearing more about that in the coming weeks as the displays unfold. And we're only a week or two away. I mean, we're almost at Halloween after all. 
That's what Christmas is about. That Jesus is God incarnate and He came to live among us. He came to be fully God and fully human. Because we needed a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Someone who is perfect, and that's God. And someone who's like us, fully human. And God in Christ is both. So that we might have that perfect sacrifice for our sin, so that He could be our Savior. The word in the Greek for this image is icon. Icon means a manifestation of, a representation of. So we see what God is like through this icon, Jesus. See, in the heresy had two sides to it. Actually, it was multifaceted, but two main sides to it. It was the foundation of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is that which says, you just have to have the knowledge. You just have to have it in your mind, because after all, the whole material world is corrupt and evil. It doesn't matter. It's what's in your mind. It's having that secret knowledge, so you just know. The other side was docetism. Docetism in Greek means it seems. It seems that this person, Jesus, was God in the flesh. It seems that he died on the cross, but it's not real. So what do we understand faith to be if that's reality? And that's the way many Christians treat their faith. As long as we have that right knowledge. Jesus came to die for our sin. We can do what we want. For all intents and purposes, there's many Christians who live that way. As if it doesn't matter. As if he's not really real. As if his life and death and resurrection really doesn't have an impact or a call on my life. That we respond with the whole of who we are. So as Paul begins to unfold this teaching about Jesus, he says, He is the image. He is the icon. He's God in the flesh. And that's the foundation for understanding. Then he goes on to say, the firstborn of all creation. Now, a lot of people misunderstand that. See, because when we think firstborn, once again, we come to this physical mindset, this worldly mindset, oh, he was born first. In other words, he was created by God. That's not what Paul's writing. You need to come from a Jewish mindset, an Old Testament mindset. That if you really understand firstborn, as you follow through the Old Testament stories, you understand that firstborn really has to do with preeminence or sovereignty or headship. That's really what firstborn is all about. Because the New Testament understands as, as Jesus being with God from the beginning because He is God. Genesis 1 says... In the beginning God created, and God spoke and said, let there be. And then John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because Jesus is God's active force in creation. He's the Word. So Jesus was not created, He was the firstborn in terms of preeminence. 
Look down through the Old Testament. You have Jacob and Esau born to Isaac. Esau is not the chosen one, even though he's the older one, Jacob was. And then Jacob went on to have 12 sons. Who was the favorite? Joseph, who was born way down the line. But who was the one who was actually selected to have the line of the Messiah? Judah, who was not the firstborn, the Lion of Judah. David, King David, the Messiah is the son of David. David was not the firstborn. Solomon, his son who would become king, not the firstborn. We could go on and on. The point being, firstborn has, has to do with headship, sovereignty. So when Paul writes the firstborn of all creation, he's the head of it. That's what he's saying. Then he goes on to say, he's the head of the church. He's the head of the church. So you have Jesus, who is Lord over creation, for starters. In fact, back in college, I took a class called the Philosophy of Science. This was at, at University of Pittsburgh, not a bastion of Christian education. And... And I read, one of the people I read was Kepler, Johannes Kepler. And Kepler had this great line. He was studying the universe. He's an astronomer and a, and a scientist. And he's studying the universe. And he says, oh God, almost responding in praise and prayer, oh God, I'm thinking your thoughts after you. Is that a great line? What if scientists really understood that today? Instead of the Big Bang Theory being the only one out there as if we don't need God for creation, they understood that God's behind creation. And Jesus Christ is the force behind creation that made it happen because God said. And we read in John 1, and the Word became flesh. That's Jesus. God the Son became flesh. And that's why He's the head of the church as well as the firstborn of all creation. He was the first one to live out what God's call in our life is in terms of understanding how when the Holy Spirit fills you, you might live. He was the one that was first risen from the dead to show us that He conquers the power of sin and the power of death and what resurrected life will be like for those who believe. That's why this firstborn Paul goes on to write, the head, the head of the church, the author of salvation, as we read in Hebrews. And that's what Jesus came to be for us. This firstborn, this head, this sovereign over us, that he came to be, yes, our Savior, but also our Lord, the Lord of our lives. If we really understand what he's about and what he wants for us. <clears throat> Continuing to read, back to your bulletin. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. See, everybody likes the notion of a Savior. That the blood of the cross cleanses us from our sin. But not everybody's enamored with the whole idea of having a Lord outside of ourselves. 
See, what Jesus was and is, is the fullness of God so that we would understand what it means to have His presence in our life, His Lordship, His Spirit dwelling in us. He wants us to be full. We talked about it in the first week. Full of grace. His grace. As John writes in John 1, that Jesus is full of grace and truth. He wants us to have that truth. He wants us to be filled with that grace. He wants us to be filled with His love. He wants us to be filled with His peace. He doesn't want us empty. The Greek word is pleroma. Another meaning for pleroma is complete. And how many people feel incomplete? They lack purpose. And they lack meaning. They lack the fullness of life. Because they're trying to live for themselves in this world of their own power. And they're missing the mark with their life, which is what sin is. God wants you to live with that fullness. He wants you to live with His completeness, full of joy, complete in Him, complete in peace. You know, when we're empty, not only do we lack meaning and purpose, you know what ends up happening when we feel empty? We get depressed. Or we get jealous. Or we get envious. Or we gossip. Or we slander so we can tear others down so we feel better about ourselves. That's not His desire. His desire is that we would know that fullness and that completeness so that we are not wanting. Because we've been reconciled to God through His blood, we have access to the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I will send you another comforter comforter to be with you and to be in you. So we no longer have separation from God. We have reconciliation. We no longer have emptiness because we're filled with the Spirit. And by His blood we are cleansed so that we become increasingly like God, holy. That's what He wants for us. A transformed life that begins on the inside. Thomas discovered this. Thomas, in the midst of his fears and his doubts, even in the face of the other apostles who are saying, He's risen. When he comes face to face with the risen Lord Jesus, what does he do? He falls down on his knees and he says, My Lord and my God. And he's filled and he understands. You know, when the prodigal son came to himself, it wasn't just that he was physically hungry. It wasn't just that he was thirsty. He had an emptiness inside himself. That he came to a realization within himself, if I go to my father's house, I'm going to have fullness. I'm going to be able to eat. I'm going to have security. I'm going to be at peace. And I want to say, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and against you. 
And I want your grace. And I want the fullness that comes from living in your house. So often, so often, we seek our own solution or the world's solution to a spiritual need. Because the spiritual need can only be met through Jesus Christ and the outpouring of His Holy Spirit. It's the only way. That any emptiness you feel would be filled by Him. Any inadequacy, any feeling of being incomplete, any lack of love, any lack of an ability to resist temptation. That's why He sends His Spirit. And so many of us, our solution for our thirst for God, we go out and we drink salt water. And what happens when you drink salt water? You're still thirsty. And you dehydrate, and eventually you die. And He offers to you the spring of living water that comes through Jesus Christ. The fullness of God. Some of you today are empty. Some of you today have empty spots in your heart and in your life. You feel incomplete. You're lacking. You lack the ability to love. God has His Son Jesus for you to answer any need, to fill the void in your heart and your life, and to change your life. But it means He's your Lord. And that's what you have to give up. The lordship of your life. Please bow with me in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to be our Savior. To die on a cross in our place for our sin. But sometimes we live as though we don't want you to be the God of our life. And we feel empty and we feel lacking. We lack purpose and meaning. We lack the ability to love and forgive. We lack the ability to resist temptation. And it's because we need a Lord. Lord, I pray this day that we would see your son Jesus before us on the cross. His arms stretched wide that he might embrace us through the sacrifice of his life. And that we might be filled to fullness and transformed by his blood 
Lord, I pray this day that you would fill us with your spirit. Fill the voids of our heart, of our lives. And help us to be transformed that we might not only know in our hearts and in our minds that Jesus is Lord, but live as though he is. And we pray this in his precious name, Jesus Christ our Lord.